Good evening, everyone. I'm Louise Mirer, President and CEO of the New York Historical Society, and it's a real pleasure for me to welcome you to our beautiful Robert H. Smith Auditorium. Uh, on view now, if you haven't yet seen it, is a wonderful exhibition of the Armory Show at 100, which, is, um, which reprises the 1913 original Armory Show with more than 100 works from that original show. So unusually enough, our galleries are populated with Picasso and Matisse and Cezanne, and the show's a real treat. So um, please come back during regular museum hours if you have not yet seen that show. And of course, we've got a gorgeous portrait, Gilded Age portrait show on our first floor, Beauty's Legacy, which I hope you'll manage to get in to see as well. Uh, I also want to make sure that anyone here this evening who is not yet a member of the New York Historical Society joins. Uh, members support all of our programs and exhibitions and great um, evenings like this one. So um, you also, of course, get great benefits like discounted uh, tickets to these kinds of programs and much, much more. So join. Tonight's program, All the Great Prizes, John Hay from Lincoln to Roosevelt, is a part of our Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speakers series, um, which is, of course, the heart of our public programs. And as, as always, I'd like to thank Mr. and Mrs. Schwartz for their great support, which is, enables us to bring so many fine historians and writers to this auditorium. I also uh, want to recognize some of our wonderful trustees in the audience this evening. Um, Patricia Klingenstein, who's here with her husband John this evening, who's, um, who predates even me on the board by a lot, in fact. And she's a um, wonderful, wonderful trustee and benefactor for our great Patricia D. Klingenstein Library. So thank you, Pat, for all that you've done for many years for this great institution. And I'm delighted to welcome my colleague from across the park, Susan Henshaw-Jones, who is here this evening with her husband. I don't know, Susan, you've disappeared. There she is. So welcome. We're glad to have you here. Thank you. Uh, tonight's program will uh, last about an hour, and it will include a question and answer session. We'll ask that you please stand behind standing microphones to my left or to my right in the aisles. We uh, ask you to do that so that the speakers on the stage can hear your question, and so can everyone else in the audience. Um, following the program, please do join us for a book signing with uh, John Tolliver and Harold Holzer, whose books will be available for purchase in our museum store. So now, we are really thrilled to welcome John Tolliver to New York Historical. Mr. Tolliver is a former senior editor at Newsweek, and he is the author of five books, including Great White Fathers, the story of the obsessive quest to create Mount Rushmore, and more recently, All the Great Prizes, the life of John Hay from Lincoln to Roosevelt, the first extensive biography of this major figure in American history since 1934. We are, of course, very pleased to welcome back Harold Holzer, our moderator for this evening. Harold Holzer is the Roger Hertog Fellow at the New York Historical Society and the chairman of the Abraham Lincoln Bicentennial Foundation. He was the chief historian for our great show a few years back um, uh, on Lincoln, and he is uh, also the author, co-author, or editor of more than 40 books on Lincoln and the Civil War era. Um, in 2008, he was awarded the National Humanities Medal 
and he served as content consultant to the Steven Spielberg film Lincoln. His latest book, The Civil War in 50 Objects, tells the story of the Civil War through the use of 50 objects from our very own New York Historical Society collection. As always, before we begin, I want to uh, ask that you please make sure that anything that makes it sound like a cell phone is switched off. And now, please do join me in welcoming our speakers. Well, good evening and welcome. It's so nice to see a great crowd tonight, uh, understanding the importance of the topic we're going to address, the man we're going to address tonight. And uh, a pleasure to meet John Tolliver. I've never met him before this evening, although we've, he's a terrific email correspondent. So see me later for his email. You can all get on the, on the list. Um, John, I'd like to start this way. Uh, in the Spielberg movie that Louise just referred to, so Abraham Lincoln strolls into his private secretary's White House bedroom at around 2 a.m., signs some papers, uh, slaps John Hay on the knee, and then leaves to uh, presumably to go back to sleep. Um, I could go two ways with this question, what's wrong with this picture, but um, it's a reminder to our audience tonight that before he was, long before he was Secretary of State, the remarkable John Hay was secretary to the president, assistant secretary to be precise, living in the White House, not just working in the White House, adjacent to the president's office. Um, were, did they develop that kind of a bond that would encourage Lincoln to sort of barge in and wake him up and talk in that confidential way? Well, first of all, it's uh, great being here with you, with the august Harold Holzer. And um, I'm guessing you could probably answer most of these questions better than I could. <laughs> but um, first of all, I didn't even notice Lincoln in that scene. <laughs> of course you didn't. Um, he was the tall guy with the beard on the left. Uh, well, as we know, uh, the White House in those days was, was wide open. Uh, there was no West Wing. The Lincoln's family lived and Lincoln worked in seven rooms on the second floor of the White House. And his two private secretaries, John Hay and John George Nicolay, lived in a bedroom directly across the hall from Lincoln's office. And um, the president and first lady just lived a couple of rooms down. And so they were. Uh, in each other's company morning and noon and night. Um, of course, living in a small space was nothing new to Abraham Lincoln, who as a circuit lawyer was uh, often not only shared a room with his fellow lawyers, but sometimes even a bed. So wandering into the offices, there, to the bedroom of his two secretary um, wouldn't have been uh, any breach of, of decorum. And um, they had a terrific rapport uh, beyond that. And um, as I say in my book, um, Lincoln treated the secretaries almost like sons, and especially John Hay. Robert Lincoln, the eldest son, had been away, was away at college through most of the Civil War. And for any number of reasons, uh, 
Lincoln felt very close to Hay. They both had a great love of literature and poetry they could recite from Shakespeare. And um, I wouldn't say that uh, Hay was the son Lincoln wished he had, but he became uh, very much like a, like a son during those times. So they were uh, in each other's company uh, in, at all times of day. And because of that, and because of John A's intimacy with Lincoln, we really, um, um, we who have read so many books on Lincoln and, and have such a great appreciation of him, um, the Lincoln that we get in the White House, the intimate glimpses of Lincoln, Lincoln in his nightshirt looking like an ostrich, Lincoln telling jokes. Uh, we know from Hay what Lincoln uh, ate for breakfast, how he rode a horse, all of these details that really flesh out the Lincoln that uh, Spielberg depicts, um, we can thank John Hay for. Um, and yet, they didn't dine at the White House. I always thought that was peculiar. They, were, they dined at Willard's or neighborhood restaurants. Though they lived in, they didn't get asked to join the family at table, which was customary for White House secretaries for a few, a few generations back, although most White House secretaries before Nicolay and Hay were relatives or relatives-in-law. So we'll get to that this estrangement part from the other side of the house. But I'm always interested in asking authors how they approach a subject. I'm a, I only have one and a half subjects. You have a lot of subjects. What, what, what directed you to John Hay? Well, you would think by now I could answer that question easily. <laughs> Um, I am not a, an academic. I'm not a trained historian, um, as you are. And I approach biography as literature. I think um, uh, the story of a person's life um, should be told as literature. And, and I, um, when I go out looking for somebody to write about, and all of the subjects I've written about have basically been set in the late 19th century, I'm looking for a story that will read like literature, and John Hay is that perfect person because not only was he a literary man, he wanted to be a writer, but he lived his life almost as literature. Um, he wanted to be a poet. Lincoln hired him because of his, his writing skills. And so um, he became the perfect subject for a for biography as literature. His letters, his thousands of pages of letters, are just absolute jewels. Theodore Roosevelt would call John Hay the greatest letter writer of his age. Um, Horace Greeley, whom he worked for after leaving the Lincoln White House, uh, called him the best editorial writer he had ever read. So um, the first attraction to John Hay was that he himself was a writer. Um, but I guess what really tipped me over the top was when I realized that not only had John Hay been at the bedside of Abraham Lincoln when he died, but he, 36 years later, he was at William McKinley's bedside when he died. I thought, that's quite an arc of American history. And, um, and not to, yeah, it's extraordinary. I wanted to, I wanted to uh, figure out how one man could live that sort of life. So let's go back to the origins of this immensely talented, precocious, 
guy. Unlike Lincoln, he has a good education, right? Mm -hmm. um, a very quick study. He was born in Indiana, moved to Warsaw, Illinois when he was three. <clears throat> Little town on the Mississippi River, not too far from Mark Twain's Hannibal. Um, and he and Twain were contemporaries, three years apart, grew up 40 miles from each other. Uh, his father, Hay's father was a doctor and, and considered himself an educated man. And his mother's uh, family was quite well educated. They had come originally from New England. And this precocious child, John Hay, quite bright, um, uh, they realized that he, um, that he was something special and that they ought to do what they could for him. So his uh, uncle paid for him to go east to Brown University um, at the age of 16. He graduated at the age of 19 uh, as his class poet. He wanted to be a poet. He wanted to be the next Edgar Allan Poe, but even in 1858 it was hard to get a job as a poet. So <laughs> back to Illinois, which he thought was full of barbarians at that point, um, and very reluctantly read law in his uncle's uh, law office, began reading law in Springfield. Um, he didn't like that much, but next door something was going on. Um, this um, long-legged, ungainly um, country lawyer named Abraham Lincoln was running for president on the ticket of something called the Republican Party, only uh, a few years old at that time. And um, Hay sort of thought that his first take on Lincoln, he was sort of one of these backwoods strivers that he had been trying to avoid when he'd gone east to Brown. Um, but then Lincoln won not only the nomination, and then finally the election. Because of Hay's talent as a writer, um, Lincoln uh, brought him on to help uh, handle correspondence for him. And when they went to Washington in um, April, no, February of uh, 1861, he took along Hay as, uh, basically as his, his secretary to handle correspondence. But he, um, would you say that Lincoln hired Hay in the end or Nicolay hired Hay? I think Nicolay brought his, brought Hay to the attention of uh, Lincoln and said, and this is the And also said, guy. I need help. Yeah, I need help. The, Nicolay the, was The mail first. was just pouring in. Right. And, um, and he said, this is the guy who can, uh, um, can help handle this. And indeed, um, over the next four years, Hay handled just mountains of correspondence and wrote, um, it's acknowledged today, many letters that went out over Lincoln's signature. So, uh, and, and it was even said that he could uh, uh, Do the imitate the signature. So you who have Lincoln letters. <laughs> or if you've gotten uh, recently, Daniel Day-Lewis also mastered the, the signature. Yeah, but that's right. What's interesting is to me is that Nicolay was a journalist in Pittsfield, Illinois, and was hired because, not only because he was a, uh, a, a secretary who could handle appointments, but because he could also handle the press in some way, preparatory to Lincoln's intervention on, on major issues. So in a way, he was an appointment secretary and a press secretary. But with Hay, Lincoln gets a bigger bang for the buck because Hay transforms himself 
into a newspaper man, doesn't he? And on the inaugural journey, journey, he starts, well, he writes stories about election day for the Missouri paper, and then he keeps writing. Well, first and last, Hay was a writer. He wrote, and he, um, even before they left Springfield, he was writing under a pseudonym, which was common in the day, for various uh, papers in St. Louis, and um, writing about, uh, sort of propagandizing about the great uh, groundswell of uh, enthusiasm for Lincoln. It, it was realized that um, before the election, and especially after the election, that the country needed to get to know who this who this guy Lincoln was. They they didn't, and and things were getting a little hairy uh, in around the country with the uh, civil war um, about to break out, and Lincoln needed to be uh, introduced and, and sold to the country if the if the country was going to avoid war. And Hay became his. Uh, one of his principal propagandists at that time. And files stories all during the inaugural journey, which I think is amazing. He's with, he is, even when he's not writing in the great diary that, that John alluded to, which is, of course, the principal source of Lincoln and the White House, his other sec another secretary who wrote a book, created a very stylized, homey book, William Stoddard, who's much less known than the other two. But Hay is writing journalism about Lincoln's journey Writing journalism in the White House. Yeah, he they're is riding on the train. They're riding on the train, and he's—you can see him just sitting there with his notebook, describing this guy bouncing along on the train to Washington. At each little stop, where he'd get off and give a speech. If it weren't for Hay, we wouldn't have these glimpses of Lincoln, and it's—and um, if we had nothing else from Hay, he would have made a great contribution to American history, and um, and yet. He went to work for Lincoln when he was 22, and he was uh, uh, when he was 26 when he left, and 40 more years of service. And I promise we'll get to the other years. I just have to finish my get him through the White House. I promise he'll leave in a few minutes. But um, John and I were speaking. I upstairs. can make up stuff after we get out of that. That <laughs> <laughs> he's he wrote the book a little bit trepidatiously because he was worried that people would only read the Lincoln section. Turns out we all learned about the post-Lincoln section. Um, when, I, when I alluded to the lack of dining privileges, I guess I was finding a way into the story that John Hay doesn't get along with uh, Mary Lincoln very well, does he? Um, and, and, the, and it's a source of constant tension. I'm not sure whose side I come out on that, but let's hear your version of that so-called relationship. We'll start with the not dining part. Anybody read Gore Vidal's Lincoln? Hay is a, a character in that with a considerable Vidalian embellishment. But um, Vidal has them leaving the White House, Nicolay and Hay, uh, not only to eat but to do a lot of drinking and 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 uh, you know whoring and things like that. Uh, I don't see the evidence for that. Um, yeah, Hay and Nicolay. Um, were the ones who called uh, Mary Todd Lincoln that Hellcat. Um, and because they were in such uh, uh, close proximity to her and to the president, they had to have been aware of, of all of her um, extravagances and all of her manipulation of the White House bu budget and, and her, her 
obsessive compulsive behavior. There is some evidence that they, um, there's one comment I think when they referred to, I, you, can you help me, it's the problem down the hall. Yeah. They, they were Lincoln men uh, 100% and they saw the bur burden of the war falling upon Lincoln's soldiers' shoulders and they, they, they worried about it and they worried for Lincoln and I think it, um, it, it worried them more that, that, Lincoln, that things were hard at home for Lincoln. Um, Hay doesn't write about it in his diaries, nor does Nicolay, but they were there when uh, um, the death of their son and, and they had to have been aware of the seances in the White House. And so, um, and they were both young men, young bachelors too. And that has to be part of the, yeah. part of it too. I mean, maybe they, a little bit of, since the, the office sphere, I hate to use a current historiographical term if I can help it, but the separation of the spheres, Mary is in her family area and supposedly, you know, she certainly goes to the blue room and the green room and all of those places, but only went to his office once in four years. So there is a sort of a competition for his attention. She wants him at lunch. Mm -hmm. Hayes got, him some, got some letters to sign. I just think one wishes they could have gotten along, all gotten along, but why can't they all get along? It's that kind of thing. And he does say, the Hellcat is getting more Hellcatical every day. That's a little it's a snippy thing. But you know, they were kids, as you say. And she was ready to uh, have them gone, as you know. They were yep. not going to remain in the second term. They um, were going off to Paris. Uh, William Seward found jobs for Hay and Nicolet at the, in the Paris legation abroad because Mary, uh, Lincoln had uh, Noah Brooks, uh, waiting in Washington journalist, waiting to come in as the as the next private secretary. She didn't want them around in the second. And, and it sounds like she won that little battle, and he was fine with it. Absolutely, that. she won a lot of battles. John was referring to the diary as a prime source. I just want to tell you, there are some there are great pieces in it, but the two that I like the best, just so you know the. The, the different degrees of this man's recollections. He's the one who heard Lincoln come out one day and say, I just had a dream. I dreamt that um, uh, a common looking person came around and someone said he's merely common looking and he said the Lord must love common looking people. That's why he made so many of them, which is a great Lincoln aphorism, but it has its roots in an actual incident that, that Hay witnessed. And the other one um, is what Hay, uh, reported after the 1864 election, which was, of course, a huge triumph for Lincoln against great odds. Um, Lincoln sadly says to Hay, it's a little singular that I, who am not a vindictive man, should have always been before the people for election in canvases marked for their bitterness. Amazing insights. I mean, he hears them, but he's smart enough to, to, uh, to record them. Well, they knew early on Hay and Nicolay, early on in the White House, they said, some unusual is going on here, and this is quite an unusual man. They had a very informal relationship with him, very intimate, but they realized that greatness was all around them, and they determined that they would start saving string to write a book about Lincoln. And I can't put my finger on exactly when that happened, but even while they were doing their job in the White House, they were 
observing and listening with an ear to posterity, which today we expect that, you know, when uh, a, someone leaves the White House, when a George Stephanopoulos leaves the White House, you know he's going to get a book deal. Well, they weren't thinking so much about the, the commerce of it. They just realized that somebody needs to get this down, and they did. It took them a while. It, it did. I know you want to move on, but a couple more things, observations. <laughs> next, next month is the um, 150th anniversary of the of the Gettysburg Address, and um, John Hay was there. And this is the 175th anniversary of John Hay's birth. Now there's a piece of information I didn't realize. This was 25 at Gettysburg. That's amazing. And of course, he gets a little carried away with the, um, the revelry the night before. I mean, it's such a solemn occasion. But the night of the 18th in Gettysburg is exploding and drinking and serenading and bands playing and Hay is palling around with a Washington editor and they're getting more and more bombed and I, I think that's the one moment when Hay was not at, didn't have his most critical faculties on and that's the day of the Gettysburg Address. Well it, it seems sort of funny because it ought to have been a very sober event. I know. Uh, the memorial and yet there were bands playing in Gettysburg and uh, uh, as you know, uh, not even all the bodies had been interred by the time that Lincoln arrived in November of 1863. Well, Hay had come up with, on the train with uh, a number of, of Washington people and uh, military men and cabinet members, and they'd all gotten drunk the night before, and he was hung over on <laughs> hung the morning over. that they went out to the, uh, to the battlefield for the address. And, Edward Everett, who was considered the greatest orator uh, of the day in America, got up and um, basically recited the whole history of the Peloponnesian War for, for t and, and every other battle and, and for two hours. Recited to, to his the right. audience. He didn't read. He, he recited. Right. He memorized the speech. And then um, it was time for Lincoln to speak. And as you know, it's not even 300 words, the Gettysburg Address. John Hay, who had heard Lincoln speak many times in his nightshirt standing at the foot of his bed, he'd, he'd read Lincoln's speeches, he'd uh, helped write many of the letters. He, he has to be forgiven for <laughs> not uh, um, really uh, appreciating the full gravity of what was uttered that day. His remark in his diary was Lincoln got up and, and said his piece, and the band played, and we all went yeah. home. <laughs> well, he did now, Hay end up, ended up owning one of the, the four extant copies of the, of the Gettysburg Address, right. the, the Hay copy. So uh, obviously, in the end, he realized, he yeah, what happened? Well, he did say, in a fine, free style, as is yeah. his want, which was nice. And um, <laughs> it's recently, I think, I don't know if you've read this, but this I should have told you before. Um, another historian has decided that a piece that was published in the Washington Chronicle, and actually signed J.H., and Gabor Borat has also come to this conclusion, mm -hmm. is probably by Hay. It's that J.H. that did it, probably. Mm -hmm. So he got his act together on the way back and wrote a, a fine piece. So I want to just leave the White House period 
with one more question about writing. And this is an important one, because if you hearken back to another Spielberg piece, Saving Private Ryan, um, you may remember the scene in which General George Marshall justifies the search for Ryan, um, the last survivor of a group of GI brothers who've all been killed, by reading Lincoln's famous Bixby letter. That's probably one of the most famous condolence letters in American history. Lincoln sent it to a, a mother in Boston who had supposedly lost five sons in the Civil War. And a senator from Massachusetts said, you really should do a tribute to her. You always should research this first, because it turns out Mrs. Bixby didn't lose all those sons. One deserted, one was in prison, one was home. <laughs> she also may have been the madam in the house of prostitution. It was not a good story, if you look into it. But it's a great letter. Lincoln says something. I mean, what did he know? He says something like, I pray that our Heavenly Father may assuage the anguish of your bereavement and leave you only the cherished memory of the loved and lost and the solemn pride that must be yours to have laid so costly a sacrifice upon the altar of freedom. But who wrote the letter? Did Lincoln or John Hay? That's the current thought. Maybe John Hay wrote it. Well, we don't I, have an original. As I said, I stand on the shoulders of giants, and you're one of those giants. Um, and I, from listen, from. I believe John Hay, John Hay wrote that letter, that Bixby letter. Many have said that the Gettysburg Address, the second inaugural, and the Bixby letters are, are three of the gems of Lincoln writing. The first two I mentioned, the second inaugural and the Gettysburg Address, of course, inscribed on the Lincoln Memorial. Um, and it's all conjectural. Uh, and it's, the debate has gone back and forth. And I uh, want to believe it's Hay. And the most convincing thing for me was the, when a lot of the uh, Lincoln letters and John Hay's letters became um, digitized online. Um, you tell me, was it Michael Burlingame? Someone, one of the Lincoln historians basically did keyword searches of, of, the, of the words in the Bixby letter. And the phrasings and the, the vocabulary in there turn up fairly frequently in John Hay's letters and seldom in Lincoln's. I think it's the word assuage that, uh, and that is And there are a, cu a couple of others. Um, and as I mentioned that, uh, Hay wrote many letters that went out over, over Lincoln's name. And um, it's entirely possible. And um, I've seen no evidence to the contrary. But as Donald Rumsfeld said, absence of evidence is not evidence. Is not evidence. evidence of absence. <laughs> just, just so we, we can end the, this part of the discussion on a 50-50 basis, I happen to think that Lincoln wrote the letter. Um, <laughs> There are letters where he, and speeches where he uses words that he doesn't use again, like disenthrall, mm -hmm. uses twice. And I think uh, John Y. Simon, a scholar who both I and Michael Burlingame knew, makes, makes this case that it's hay. But until we find that, I mean, Mrs. Mrs. Bixby was apparently not only a madam and not only hiding the um, whereabouts of her sons who didn't die, but she was a Democrat. <laughs> so she may have just thrown the letter into the fire. 
Yeah, the lick, oh, for, we forgot to mention that. There is no, uh, uh, the letter is no longer around, yeah. But I get a letter three or four times a year from someone who's discovered it. Never fails. Well, you'll forgive me for weighing in on the side of hay. In this I, I, and you'll forgive me for <laughs> keeping the... So, it worked for me. <laughs> so when does John Hay, when do John Hay and John Nicolay decide, obviously the Century Company, the magazine comes to them and says, why don't you write a serialized, um, it's amazing that it was serialized first. More than Dickensian, it's 10, 10 volumes. But who, who has the idea? Is it Nicolay or Hay? Well, of course, the assassination changed everything. Mm -hmm. And um, Hay and Nicolay went to Springfield for Lincoln's burial. They came back to the White House, and they found Robert Lincoln, the eldest son, in the president's office, bundling up the papers and, and clearing out his father's desk. And um, there was nothing written down, but there was on a handshake an acknowledgment that Hay and Nicolay would eventually work on their Lincoln book. And Robert took the papers, some to Chicago, most to uh, uh, David Davis's office in uh, Bloomington, in Illinois, uh, Lincoln's good friend from Illinois, later Supreme Court Justice Davis. Um, and they thought they would uh, then be able to use them for um, their book with uh, Robert Lincoln's blessing. That was 1865. Hay and Nicolay went off th their different directions. First, they both went to Paris then um, returned after several years. And um, they didn't really get around to working on their book till uh, the early, uh, till the mid-1880s, and then, then only fitfully. They finally um, bore down, um, I think beginning around 1893. I'm, I'm forgetful on, on that date, but by that time, uh, John Hay had met and uh, Henry Adams, the great historian Henry Adams, who at that time was working on his um, great histories of the Jefferson and Madison administrations. Um, and they both admired uh, Edwin Gibbon. The, the real gold standard for history at the time was, um, even then, was the uh, decline and fall of the Roman Empire. So. Um, Adams's book ended up being nine volumes. And I think Hay and Nicolay realized we need to uh, just hit our stride. And, and um, um, we've, we're not, we're not uh, um, uh, in any hurry at this point. And we're going to take, uh, take this on as, as in the fullness it deserved. Now, a number of other biographies had come out um, throughout those years. And in, in um, uh, 1872, uh, Ward Hill Lehman had published a biography of Lincoln that um, Hay and Nicolay and the Lincoln family, Robert Lincoln especially, regarded as total heresy. This is the biography that talks about uh, Lincoln's vulgarity. It talks about Lincoln being so bereft over breaking up with his, his first girlfriend that he's near suicide. It talks about him uh, uh, not uh, regarding the, the, the Bible as uh, the, you know, the word of God. All, all these things are just uh, supposed to be warts and all, but the, 
but not received well by, by any of the true Lincoln men, Hay and Nicolay and Robert Lincoln. So they felt especially charged to write the wrongs and write the story of the Lincoln that um, uh, they had known. And, and it took them a full 15 years. First serialized in uh, 1886 and then published as a, a, a 10 volume book sold by subscription and, and finally in 1890. And did well. It, um, did, it did well as a book, which is... Considering that it, most everybody was going to read it, read it in the, in, the in, magazine. The, in the magazine first. And keep in mind that through all of this time, Nicolay and Hay had the exclusive use of the Lincoln Papers. They were entrusted with reading and interpreting them, and for the most part, historians weren't given access to the Lincoln Papers. There's a great little scene of Hay was working for the uh, New York Tribune in, in the um, early 1870s when, uh, and he wasn't much of a reporter, a great writer, but he didn't have the reporting skills, and the Chicago fire broke out in 1873, and they sent him to Chicago to cover the fire. He ultimately interviewed Mrs. O'Leary, and, 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 and filed well for, a, for a not an uh, experienced reporter. But the first thing he did when he got off the train in Chicago was he went to Robert Lincoln's office to see what's happened to Lincoln's stuff. Most of it, was, it turned out, was downstate, Bloomington, Illinois. But he was greatly relieved that Lincoln, Robert Lincoln had gotten out with whatever, whatever goodies he had there. But the, that was still for, foremost on his mind. Was, Make sure the Lincoln stuff is safe. And they, just for the record, they didn't become public until 1947, 25 years after Robert's uh, death. So we should certainly give Hay his due as a post, uh, post White House, post bi biography, post New York Tribune days, the emergence of this extraordinary second career as a diplomat. Unexpected, at least until I read your book, and it seemed like a natural development, but unexpected. Well, hey, as mentioned, it was a quick study. He went off to three postings immediately after um, leaving Washington. Um, William Seward was a, a, a great friend and protector and patron of, of Hay and got him uh, his first job. But Hay took it from there. He was fluent in became fluent in French, German, Spanish. Um, he was in the court of Napoleon III. He, um, he witnessed much of the, um, of the Franco-Prussian War. He was in Madrid when uh, uh, Isabella II was, uh, left the throne and the French Republic was being formed. He saw the collapse of the, of the Habsburgs in, in, in Austria. He, he got a crash course in what was uh, what he called the progress of democracy in Europe. So there was uh, nobody better qualified for, for uh, diplomatic service than at that age than he. Um, it took him a full 20 years to actually put on the, the, the harness of a diplomat. But uh, all that while, he was a steadfast um, uh, Republican, keeping the uh, um, memory of Lincoln and the cause of Lincoln and, and the, of Lincoln alive. And so when it finally came um, to 1898, he was the natural choice 
for William McKinley to send him to England as ambassador. And from there, as Robert Lincoln had served as ambassador to the, to the court of St. James. Right. And then elevated, as one would have think might have happened to Robert, but didn't, um, he's elevated to Secretary of State. Well, Hay was in England in 1898 when the Spanish-American War broke out. Actually, he was on touring the Nile with Henry Adams when the Maine was sunk. So he wasn't um, in Washington at that time. Got back to London, and uh, John Sherman was the Secretary of State, and senile and incapable of, uh, of doing the job, so it was natural to bring back Hay as Secretary of State. So Hay was on deck in charge of, of basically uh, bringing the United States um, into the 20th century as, as a new world power. Um, he thought he would fill out the term and leave and, and uh, just, just stay a couple of years. Uh, McKinley, he resigned, McKinley begged him to stay on. McKinley was assassinated in September 1901, and Theodore Roosevelt, whom Hay had known when Teddy was a little boy, uh, beseeched him to stay on as his Secretary of State. So he served from September of 1898 through to his death in July 1st of 1905, one of the longest stints as Secretary of State. And significant achievements along the way, right? It wasn't just filling a place. Um, some of those achievements were um, you got the open door, which was all of the, the so-called great powers were wanting to carve China up into their own little economic um, fiefdoms. And hey, through great sleight of hand, by not really doing anything other than uh, using anything other than sort of bluff and his goodwill persuaded all of the other countries, Russia, Japan, Britain, Germany, and France, to agree to respect each other's interest in China. And, and I think um, it's a little complicated to explain here, but it, it, he doesn't get full credit for it today. But I think that if Hay hadn't pulled this off in 1901, China might have become several different countries and may never have been put back together. Um, he, uh, the Panama Canal, of course, is, is the other big piece of his portfolio. Um, and again, it was a, a case of, of, of um, making sure that our, our interests were um, um, protected and um, but I, that was one of the touchiest things for me in the book because I thought, well, here's where I'm going to find the smoking gun. Did, did, did John Hay and Teddy Roosevelt really pull the trigger and um, steal Panama for the United States? I think uh, at best I can say they, um, they were the second. They, they backed up uh, Panama when it rebelled from Colombia. And as try as I may, I can't really... Uh, uh, find solid evidence of them, of them um, um, with their hand, their hand on the trigger. Eliu Ruder succeeded uh, John Hay 
uh, would later accused of, Roosevelt said you were accused of seduction, but but confessed to rape. Well, um, <laughs> um, in any case, uh, uh, the Panama Canal was the other the other great piece of his portfolio. I'm going to ask another question, but any of you who have questions, let me urge you to come to the microphones now while I ask another of John. Um, I find the um, the connection to TR to be such a full circle story because TR, of course, was a great Lincoln admirer. You knew I'd get back to that, of course. And doesn't doesn't Hay give TR a ring with a lock of Lincoln's hair in it? Well, the the arc of my book and the subtitle of my book is um, is really is really very lovely because, as I mentioned, Hay was like a son to Lincoln. And he was like a father to Theodore Roosevelt. Roosevelt's father had died when he was in college, when he was about 20 years old. Hay was exactly 20 years older than Teddy Roosevelt. He'd known him when he was a, a little boy in knee breeches. So they all, uh, he and Henry Adams all laughed that when Teddy Roosevelt uh, became vice president, they couldn't believe that this, this little boy was now, you know, that damn cowboy in the White House, as Mark Hanna said of him. Um, and so, son to one president, father to another, if you will. And um, it was very touching. And at the end of, uh, of Hay's life, when, when Roosevelt was inaugurated, was elected properly in 1904, um, John Hay, the day before the inauguration, gave Teddy Roosevelt a ring in which he had had molded a hair of Abraham Lincoln with an inscription inside. And Roosevelt wrote to John Hay and said, you know, I have never received any gift that touches me as much as this. And um, so Roosevelt was wearing this ring with Lincoln's hair in it given to him by John Hay. So it's the talismanic link mm -hmm. From you know the two great Republican presidents, um, two of the greatest presidents of, of in our history, linked by this little thread of hair and linked by John Hay. Now John Hay, when he um, uh, was near his death in the spring of 1905, he'd gone off to Europe to take uh, the waters of the spas over there, and 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 on the way home on the ship. He had a dream, which he wrote in his diaries. He was writing to the very end. And in this dream, um, he said, I, I was called to the White House um, to do a small, unimportant piece of work. And when I got to the White House, instead of Theodore Roosevelt being there, it was Abraham Lincoln. And yet, it was an unimportant chore, and, and I did it, and I was happy to do it. And he said, but, but I was overwhelmed by this great weight of melancholy. Um, and that was the next to last entry in his diary. So, so even while he was serving with Roosevelt, Lincoln was on his mind. And I think part of the... Um, respect and love that 
Roosevelt had for Lincoln was knowing that he had he had Lincoln's man in his in his presence. Mm -hmm. We have a question here, yes, sir. Jim Pesinich, um What did uh, John Hay do when he went to France and before he wrote uh, uh, the the history of Lincoln with Nicolay in between those years? Um, three years, four years abroad in three different legations, came back, worked uh, four years for the New York Tribune, and um, spent much of that time excoriating Ulysses S. Grant. Hay had loved Lincoln, uh, thought Grant was a great president, thought he was a, 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 a loved Grant as a, a general, hated him as a, as a president. Um, then married the daughter of, um, of a man named Amasa Stone, who before there was Carnegie's and, and, and uh, Rockefeller's, Amasa Stone was one of the wealthiest robber barons in the country. So, uh, and his, they were from Cleveland. He moved to Cleveland um, and, and lived a true Gilded Age life with grand tours abroad and fabulous mansions. And, um, and then took up writing. He wrote a best-selling novel. He continued writing poetry. He took his poetry very seriously and became quite renowned as a poet. And as I mentioned, um, all the while getting ready, saving strength, pulling things together so that he would undertake his great, great work, which was the, would be called the Lincoln, uh, the Lincoln history. You know, it, it's, it's, it's time we punctured some of the uh, nobility of John Hay, just a little bit. I mean, he was a pretty wild uh, bachelor in his day, and uh, you put him in the same league as Nicolay. Nicolay was just writing these careful letters to his fiance during all this time. John didn't have a Hay didn't have a fiance. Um, a lot of girlfriends, but he didn't have a fiance. And he had a rather um, unusual marriage, and the whole uh, Hay Adams living in, off Lafayette Park, and who were they really in love with, and were they in love with the other guy's wife? And I find that all, see, that's the movie stuff that you have to think about. But tell us a little bit about uh, John Hay's personal life. The miniseries, yeah. The mini <laughs> right. Well, he never really liked Cleveland that much. Um, <laughs> part of it was, you know, there were a lot of great men came from Cleveland, but not a lot of great men came to Cleveland. And once he uh, met Adams, Henry Adams, which was one of the great friendships of, of any era. It's, this is a fabulous friendship. Their letters are, are really the core of my book. Um, Adams persuaded him to move to Washington, and they built side-by-side -side houses there on Lafayette Square, um, now the site of the Hay Adams Hotel. From Hay's parlor, he could look across from, to his old bedroom in the White House, and, and you can still do that from the windows of the Hay Adams Hotel. Um, Washington was a much smaller, more intimate place, and, and most of their friends lived around them, the, the senators and cabinet members, um, including um, two senators in particular, one Henry Cabot Lodge from Massachusetts and James Donald Cameron from uh, 
Pennsylvania. Now, um, I won't go into the, his, Hay's relationship with these two senators, but I will mention that um, Sean Hay was in love with both of their wives at different points, <laughs> their years in Washington. Uh, more briefly with Nanny Lodge, the wife of Henry Cabot Lodge, but for nearly 20 years, uh, totally smitten by Lizzie Cameron, the Madam X of Washington, a true femme fatale. Who, uh, and as it turned out, as I uh, discovered in researching my book, uh, Henry Adams, we've known, had a thing for Lizzie Cameron, especially after Henry Adams' wife uh, died. He chased her around ardently. But meanwhile, his very best friend, John Hay, was also terribly in love. Um, I discovered, uh, in the course of my research, a, a large pile of letters um, at the Massachusetts Historical Society, which I thought were going to be letters from John Hay to Annie Lodge. They're, 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 they're just smoldering love letters to Lizzie Cameron, including letters written at written it during cabinet meetings. They're written on executive mansion stationery, sitting there writing in pencil. And as you know, the Secretary of State sits to the right of the president, as close as we are, except in the Lincoln movie, Seward sits on the left, another error. Um, um, and he's writing in pencil saying, you know, I can't, what the Secretary of War, he, he's good for about 20 minutes of blather, and so I'll just write a love letter to you. And um, I don't think that Hay's wife, to whom he remained married um, through till the end of his life, um, knew, had any clue of what was going on. So, we, sort of got a little Edith Wharton and yeah. Henry James in here. We have time for one more question. We'll do that. Sir. Hey, uh, hey, the diplomat. Um, as the ambassador to the court of St. James, what was his role in helping forge the special relationship between the United States and Great Britain? Well, Hay was an uh, Anglophile, total Anglophile. He'd, you know, because of his great wealth, he'd traveled uh, in the fine style and, and spent a lot of time in England, had uh, numerous friends uh, in Parliament and the government, and. Um, so um, the English loved him almost as much as he loved them. So really, it was the foundation of a, of a, a rapprochement. Remember, relations with England had been fairly tender um, after the Civil War because of, Lincoln, because of England's, some of its sympathies towards the South, because of uh, um, the, some of the settlements of, of, of damage to American shipping after the war that went on for years, and Hay helped uh, mend that rift. Um, he was also just a lovely guy and, and charming, and the English loved his manners, and they loved that, that he wasn't one of these uh, coarse Americans. He was very urbane. Queen Victoria loved John Hay. She, she uh, broke with protocol, and she would uh, push her relatives aside and, and so that he so that John Hay could sit next to her at dinners. Um, she confided um, to one of her ministers that of all of the ambassadors that had ever served, uh, American ambassadors that had ever uh, come in her, to her audience, John Hay was her absolute favorite. 
So how should we remember John Hay as a, as a uh, witness to history or as a, as a maker of history, or both? Well, obviously, he's uh, very much, and I don't use this word lightly, an author of history, not just the zealot in the corner of it. And I say author because, um, because as we started out, he was a writer. Um, His real, his real strength, uh, he was himself an historian, but his um, accounts of the, uh, the legacy he leaves behind in uh, his, his writing about the events of his time make him um, absolutely one of the great authors of our history, regardless of what you think of what he did in Panama or China uh, in, for, or, or, uh, for uh, the Americans imperialism for a hundred years going on into the future if anybody really wants to know and get an understanding what happened in American life between the Civil War and the beginning of the 20th century John Hay has got to be one of the go-to guys well John Hay needed a John Hay and I think you've provided the insights almost as if you were there John, in the book and, and, and tonight. Um, you've been an eyewitness to his history just as he was an eyewitness and a maker of history. I like that, an author. It's concise. Well, I, I wanted, just wanted to, when I got to know him, I just wanted to do him justice. He was truly my great prize. So I want to end with a diary entry in which John Hay described Lincoln with the nickname that he used for him because it's quite beautiful and I think it's a good way to end. The tycoon is in fine whack. I have rarely seen him more serene and busy. He's managing this war, the draft, foreign relations, and planning a reconstruction of the Union all at once. I never knew with what tyrannous authority he rules the cabinet till now. I am growing more and more firmly convinced that the good of the country absolutely demands that he should be kept where he is till this thing is over. I believe the hand of God placed him where he is. What terrific writing, and what terrific writing marked all the great prizes uh, by John Tolliver, whom we thank for bringing this neglected but glistening character to life for us. Thank you, John. Well, thank you.